Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Our Lord was a master teacher. Sometimes as a preacher or just one who teaches a Bible class, I look back and read some of the sermons, some of the parables, and besides just the content, I'm just amazed at the presentation, just the ability There's several occasions where he was called rabbi, teacher. And you may also recall, at least once as far as we have recorded, he was called rabboni, a word that literally means great or master teacher. Jesus knew just what to say. And he was able to say it in in, in a way that is memorable. Folks, it's been 2,000 years since he said these things. And yet how many things that Jesus said... Can some who don't even really believe the Bible still quote or at least paraphrase, summarize, simply because it was said in such a way that it's memorable? Or at least certain concepts that Jesus gave that still infiltrate our common language because he said it in in such a way that it's just so memorable. It's the sign of a master teacher. But all of these years later, we still hold to so much of what he said. And of course, on Sunday mornings this year, we're thinking about just the words of Jesus, those red letters we're calling it. You know, we think about the, those copies of the Bible that you put, put the words of Jesus in, in red. And several times this year, this morning being included, we're thinking about those parables that he told, those earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, or as the picture on the screens before you has it, an earthly story with a spiritual truth, where Jesus just used something from everyday common life and was able to draw from that object or that event or that activity, something that was of eternal spiritual value and things that still mean so much to us. Some of them were not long, but a little bit longer than others. You might think of the parable of the sower, for example, that's what seven or eight verses in length. And compared to most of the parables, that's of a pretty good length. The, the, the parable of the, uh, the good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son longer than some others. And literally, entire books have been written on individual parables because of how much truth is contained in some of those parables. Others, such as the one we read a few moments ago, and Bright did a great job reading it. It's, what, 50 words maybe? It's very short, just a couple of verses. But yet in those, that economy of words, Jesus was able to present to us a truth that we need to always understand. Back near the beginning of the year, as we're studying these words of Jesus, we spent some time with one of the parables. And one of the things, one of the principles we laid down then was that we need to make sure when we study parables that we get the main point and then be careful with the details. That's not as difficult in a parable that's only two verses long because there aren't that many details. But we're calling our lesson this morning from seed to tree Because Jesus takes this mustard seed parable, this mustard seed picture, and presents to us a very important principle that all of us need to understand. And all we're going to do this morning is three very simple things. We're going to notice the context of the parable. Where does this fall in the ministry of Jesus? 
Then we're going to take a few minutes to notice the contents of the parable. What, what is this little short story that Jesus told? And then we're hopefully going to make some modern-day considerations that we can apply to our life all these years later. So the context, the contents, and then some considerations. Notice, first of all, the context. And we've been saying it over and over this year, especially as we studied these, these sermons where we're looking at one specific text. We must make certain we know the context. But here's what's interesting about studying the context of this parable. We could lift, if you please, the parable of the mustard seed, seed out of its context and still understand what it means. So we're not really looking at the context this morning necessarily for meaning We're looking at context this morning more for timing because it's interesting to see the time in which Jesus told this very short parable. If you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 13 and you glance back up at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1, you're going to see that that chapter begins with something along the lines of that same day. It's not often you see that phrase in the Bible, at least in the life of Christ, that same day. What Matthew obviously is telling us is that what had happened before in his account of the gospel, this is a continuation of it. But it's not just Matthew chapter 12. In fact, if you read very carefully through the book of Matthew, that same day begins all the way back up in Matthew chapter 11. You have three full chapters of the book of Matthew that constitute for us one day. Jesus is approached in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 1, by some messengers from John the Baptist. That great man, you recall, is in prison. He's having some doubts and discouragement. And from that incident, now we're not going to read all these verses or even study all these verses, but just look very quickly with me at what all happens in one day in the life of our Lord. He had told those messengers in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, to go back and encourage John. Then beginning in verse 7, He had turned and taught the crowds around them concerning the place or the position of John the Baptist. That goes all the way through verse 19. And then he continued by denouncing the works of very privileged cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, because they wouldn't repent, even though they had seen him, seen the Messiah, and heard the works. And that led to that very famous invitation, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That goes through verse 30. Chapter 12 begins with Jesus traveling, and he and his disciples were plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, but this being the same day, he was questioned about it because, of course, it was on the Sabbath. And then, in a very generic way, we're told in Matthew 12, verses 14 through 21, that he healed many, but then he retreated to be alone for a little while, to get away with God. Starting in Matthew 12 and verse 22, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, but then he had to face the charge of being of the devil himself. And Jesus taught about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, about false teachers, about his own resurrection as prefigured by Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days, teaching about unclean spirits. That runs all the way through Matthew 12, 45. And finally, his family is nearby, but he uses that situation to show that those who follow him are the ones who truly are his family. And it's at the end of all of that that we're we're told that Jesus, on that same day, got into a boat, not to leave, but to teach. And Jesus delivers for us in Matthew, what we have recorded is Matthew 13, a series or set of parables 
that fill in so much information about the kingdom. Now, you may think that was just filler, that we just wasted the last three or four minutes of our time. But I wanted to run through all that information to show you a couple of very important things about the timing of this parable. First is just a very personal thing. Have you ever had a long day? You ever been tired at the end of a day? You ever wondered what it was like to accomplish an incredible amount at the end of the day? Folks, if you ever have, Jesus understands. Jesus knows the weariness of a long day. Look at what all he did in one day. And I don't think that these three chapters are meant to be the exception to the rule. I think they're meant to show us this was a fairly typical day during this time of the ministry of the work of Jesus. That most days were filled with teaching, with healing, and yet somehow, in the midst of all that, time in the middle to get away, to retreat, to be with the Lord. But Jesus knows what it's like to have a full schedule, to have a long day, the weariness of that, the fullness of that, and yet He still gives Himself. But even more than that, I wanted to go through all of that to show you also that the timing of this shows us that Jesus is at a strong point in His ministry. And that may not be the the exact right way of wording this. But what we simply mean is, did you notice that Jesus got out into the boat to teach because He had to? The crowds were pressing in on Him. He had healed many. He had taught many. He had denounced false teachers. He had done all those things. And now Jesus has to get out into that boat to teach because the crowds are streaming to the shore to hear this man teach, which shows us something about Jesus' ability as a master teacher. As Jesus is not just famous, but as Jesus is seeing these crowds grow, he realizes it is time to begin to fill in their mind with more information about the kingdom. Jesus knew not just what to teach, Jesus knew when to teach. These people needed to begin to get some things in their mind about this kingdom because things very soon were going to begin to turn against Jesus. But they need to have these pictures in mind. These illustrations, if you please, in mind about sowers and mustard seeds and wheats and tares and all this this stuff because eventually they were going to need to understand what this kingdom was. And so Jesus begins to separate some things. Who's really going to listen and who's really not going to listen? That's the context. Now with that in mind, let's go specifically to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. And let's take some time to notice... The contents. What is actually in this parable? It's brief. It's only two verses as we have recorded for us. But in those couple of verses, I think there are four parts to it. Four major things that help us understand the parable. The first is the sowing of the seed. Now you may think that's kind of redundant because earlier in this very same chapter, Jesus had told that parable that sometimes is called the key to all the parables, the parable of the sower. If we can understand the parable of the sower, some people say, suggest we can understand all other parables because Jesus took the time to explain that parable. Here's what this means, here's what this means, here's what this means, and so on and so forth. And in the parable of the sower, when Jesus explained it, he said, the seed is what? The seed is what? I hope someone knows. The seed is the Word of God. That may be the case in this parable. But Jesus is telling a very specific parable about the kingdom. This is a different parable. But here's the thing. Some suggest the seed is the kingdom. 
in this parable. Some suggest the seed in this parable is the Word of God again. Here's the thing. It doesn't make any difference. Because how do you get the kingdom by sowing the seed of the Word of God? So whether it's meant to be the Word of God again, or whether Jesus is specifically saying this is the kingdom, it's one and the same. We do not get the kingdom, we do not get the church, unless we sow the seed. And so this parable begins by someone sowing this seed in their garden or in their yard. And it reminds us of that song we sometimes sing that begins the question, are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother? How often are we reminded in Scripture of our responsibility of sowing the seed? 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. We're going to come back to that verse again in a few moments, I hope. But I want you just to think about that concept. Paul never said, I had to do everything. But he did say, I have to plant and someone has to water. It could have been Paul himself. It could have been Apollos. It could have been somebody else. But somebody has to plant and somebody has to water. Jesus gave the church the marching orders that we are to follow to make disciples of all nations. How does that happen? We teach. We sow the seed of the Word of God. And so the kingdom does not come, the kingdom does not become established, I should say, on this earth unless it is sown. But, of course, the parable goes on, and you have a very small start. I guess the most famous part of this parable is the fact it's a mustard seed, little tiny thing. In fact, I thought about getting a picture of a mustard seed and putting it on the PowerPoint, but I actually decided against it because it would be so magnified on the picture that it wouldn't make the point. A mustard seed is somewhere around a twentieth of an inch in diameter. That's about a millimeter to two millimeters. So if I held one up here in my fingers, Brother John couldn't even see it from the front row. They are minuscule, little tiny things. What was Jesus' point? You know, sometimes we go to Acts chapter 2, and we look at what happened on that day, and we get near the end of the chapter, and we're told that 3,000 people were added to them. And folks, that's amazing, isn't it? 3,000 people on that first day. But can I ask a question? How many people were at Pentecost? It was way more than 3,000, wasn't it? Estimates run somewhere between a half million and one and a half million. And 3,000 believed and obeyed on that day. On top of that, how many people were there on earth at that point in time? I have no idea. I haven't asked anybody. But it's a big number. <laughs> Several million. Okay, let's just put it that way. Out of that, how many became Christians? 3,000. Now, is 3,000 an impressive number? Yeah. But compared to the number of people who heard the message, the number of people who could have heard the message on that day, and the number of people who were on the earth, folks, it was a tiny, tiny start. They were added to that 120 who had been in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. So you got 3,120 people, basically, out of the millions on the face of the earth. By the way, it's kind of interesting to think about at least in concept, some parallels between the beginning of the church and when Jesus himself came to the earth to be born. Because that was in a pretty nothing place too, wasn't it? Bethlehem. And you've got some kind of amazing events, the angels you know, speaking to the shepherds and that sort of thing, but how many people actually knew what happened that night? Very few, right? And yet the influence of Christ is larger than the influence of any person who's ever lived, by far, and it always will be. You've got the church, the kingdom, that Jesus did not roll back the sky and tell everybody on the face of the earth, okay, today is the day the kingdom starts. Get ye to Jerusalem and hear them. That didn't happen. 3,000 believed and obeyed out of millions on the face of the earth. 
It was a small start. And that could be discouraging in a way. Wow, it's a very small start. But that's the beauty of this parable because you also have the sure success. Just as that mustard seed, that tiny itty-bitty thing, is put into the ground, Jesus says it grows into the largest of all plants. Now, some have said that's a, that obviously proves the Bible's not inspired. I've actually, I've actually read that. Because the mustard tree is not the largest of all plants. You go out west in America, you see trees that are you know, matching drive through them, right? You drive through the, the tunnels that are cut through the trees. Mustard trees are not that big. So some people say, well, Jesus obviously didn't know that mustard trees are not the biggest plants in the world. It's not what he's talking about. For one thing, he wasn't talking about America in 2017. (laughs) But he also was suggesting to them that in their mind, when they went out in their, their garden or their yard or maybe their communities, the largest thing they personally would plant that at least that would grow into was a mustard tree. Larger than little olive groves or grapevines or those sorts of things that we think about in that part of the world. This was the largest. And whether they personally had ever planted one of those tiny itty-bitty seeds or not, they knew this concept, that that tree that's in our backyard came from the seed that you can barely even see. Matthew chapter 16. What is it Jesus said? On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades will not Prevail against it. Are there some things going on in our world, if I may say so, especially in our society, that cause me concern? Yeah. You would have to have your head buried in the sand for it not to be that way. Are there some things that go on in our world and our society that makes me, makes me concerned you know, about the church simply meaning maybe we don't have the freedoms in the future we've had in the past? Yeah, I think about that sometimes. And sometimes I do get worried, especially as I grow a little bit older for my kids and generations beyond. But folks, my Lord said the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. The kingdom is going to be here. The church is going to be here. Now, there are certain places where the church may not be as strong or as large There may be places in the world where the church grows weaker at times and and smaller at times, and maybe we're seeing that in our own society. Maybe we're seeing that. In fact, I think we are in a lot of places. But look at the church around the world. I actually heard a report last night. I had this lesson prepared, and I was listening to something last night that I believe was in the country of Greece. I know it was in a country in Europe where refugees from the Middle East are coming seeking refuge and so on and so forth, where churches of Christ have some missionaries working. And literally every single day, and I believe they said for the last five months, it may not have been I was tired, I just got back from camp, okay? But I believe they said for the last five months, every single day at least one person has been baptized into Christ. You and I can look around sometimes and see communities, see our country, and think, boy, church is in trouble. And maybe it is in a way. But my Lord said the church is not going to be defeated. The success is assured by my Lord. And this parable shows that. Just as that seed grows into that tree, yes, conditions have to be right. We can get into that, soil and water and so on and so forth. So the church will grow. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth or God gave the increase. There has to be work on our part, but it will grow. And when it does, Jesus in the fourth place mentions the sweeping significance of the parable, of the, of the kingdom, I should say, in this parable. You know, different scholars have tried to make some different things out of the birds in this parable. You know, earlier in the chapter, Jesus had told the parable of the sower, and of course, in that parable, the birds are a bad thing, right? Because they come and take, they snatch away the, uh, the, the seed that's on top of the wayside soil. But this is a different parable. And these birds in this parable are not doing anything bad, are they? They're making their nest. They're resting in the branches. And I think what Jesus is trying to get across to us here is the significance or the influence, if you want to think of it that way, of the church. That as the church grows, as the church, as the kingdom matures, people will find rest. People will find encouragement. People will find strength. People will find help. In, if you please, the branches of the church. Our elders know this. I know Brother Jamie White, our deacon of benevolence, knows this. Those of us who work in the office know this. But how often when somebody has a financial crisis in their life, one of the first phone calls they make is right here. Now, we could look at that in a thousand different ways, couldn't we? But I think there is a positive side to that. That there's still at least a, a, a semblance of if I have some trouble, that's a place I can at least seek some help. It hasn't been often. I don't want to overstate it, but it's not been, to pardon the grammar, it's not been never. Okay, It's been, been several times where people who weren't even members of the church were having marital problems or had someone in the hospital or had lost a loved one and called myself or I'm sure have called Tyler or called another preacher and said, can you talk with us? Can you come by? Can someone from there come by? Again, we could look at that from a hundred different directions. But there's something about that that shows us that there is significance to it. As the early church grew, when you read through the book of Acts, yes, you see them teaching. Acts 8 and verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. How wonderful that is. But you also see accounts where people are just helping other people. Friday at camp, our, our Bible lesson for the, the younger ones was on, on Dorcas or Tabitha. Have you ever noticed in that story that it does not say she made clothes just for her fellow Christians? All it says is she made clothes for the people, for the poor. She was helping who she could. And you see accounts like that throughout all the, the New Testament. Because people were seeing that as the church grew and as the church matured, this was a place where we can find help. We can find acceptance in the right way. We don't accept sin, but we accept, we accept people as they are, and we hopefully grow them into mature Christians, people of the book, if you please, people who follow Christ. Church is a place of significance. And that significance should grow and grow. That takes a couple of things we'll get to in a couple of minutes, an inward look and an outward look. But for right now, just think for a moment and ask yourself not about Ninth Avenue as a congregation, but about you individually. When people see me, do they find that rest? Do they find that significance, that help, that influence, 
that God would have us to have. That's the parable. So you've seen the context. It's at a point of strength in Jesus' ministry. We've seen the, the contents of it, walk through it in a very brief way. But as we close, let's make three very simple observations. Let's make three considerations. What are some things from this parable that we can take away and live out in our life? There are many, but again, let's just notice three. I think, number one, from this parable, we need to learn to honor the beginnings of the church. It can be, for some people, kind of boring how often we go back to Acts chapter 2. In fact, there's an entire book that the name of the book is Acts 2, the hub of the Bible. Because everything, from basically from the fall of man in Genesis 3 all the way to Acts chapter 2, points to that chapter, what happened on that day. And virtually everything that occurs from Acts chapter 3 all the way through Revelation points back to what happened in Acts chapter 2, where the church comes, the kingdom is established, and people begin to spread with this new message, the message of Christ, the message of Christianity, the message of forgiveness through the blood, and on and on and on it goes. Everything before it points to it, everything from then on points back to it. And people say, That's just, man, you all go to that chapter all the time. What's the deal with Acts chapter 2? Because while there were just 3,000 out of the millions on the face of the earth, by the time about three decades later, Paul penned the letter we know as the book of Colossians, without the aid of television, without the aid of the internet, without, without cars, without planes, he was able to write by inspiration in Colossians 1 and verse 23 that this message has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. May I ask myself, as well as all of us, what's my excuse? Folks, we need to honor those early Christians. Look at what they did. As we said earlier, Acts 8 and verse 4, those who were scattered, wait a minute, why were they scattered? They were being persecuted. They were being driven out of Jerusalem. And in that, that moment where they could have been fearful and said, that's it, I'm giving up on this, the verse goes on, they went everywhere preaching the word. Even though they were being forced out because of their faith, they didn't stop their faith. We honor that. I think also we can take away that we need to respect the growth of the church. And that's true in a couple of different ways. One is simply, as we said early on, the growth of the church. Or times in history where the churches of Christ throughout the world have grown some of you remember the days when the Church of Christ was known as the fastest growing religious group in America, the 1940s and early 50s. That's true demographically, or sociologically, I guess would be the right way of saying that. But at that time, the Churches of Christ were the largest or the fastest growing religious group in America. But I also look at that, and I think not just church universally, but I think church congregationally. It breaks my heart when I see this conversation play out sometimes I have been in conversations literally face to face or in a group other times I've seen it online where congregation A is growing people have been baptized people are placing membership and the reaction of some people is this their first reaction is what are they doing wrong that should break our heart now, are there times when a church grows and is doing things that are wrong? Yes, that happens. 
Okay, we have, we have to say that does happen. But folks, that should not be our first reaction. What are they doing wrong when Jesus himself in this parable said, if we will sow the seed, it will grow if we'll work it. That shouldn't be our natural reaction. I need to respect places and be thankful for places where God is giving the increase. I may never live in one of those places. I pray it is. I pray it's here. But it may not happen. But praise God for places where it does happen. And then number three, we need to be a welcoming branch within the church. When people look at you individually, do they know what sports team you cheer for? They know what your grandkids are doing? (laughs) That's great. But do they also know that's someone I can come to when my heart is breaking? That's someone I can come to and my soul needs rest. Because while they may not be able to give all the answers, they can point me to the one who, who, who can. And if I may say so, we look at ourselves collectively or congregationally and ask the same questions. As I said a moment ago, that requires a couple of things, an inward look and an outward look. It requires an inward look because we must make certain that we're still that tree. In other words, that we're still connected to that kingdom, to that root. That we're staying true to the principles of the Word of God. And that we're really that kingdom that Jesus established in the church. Are we making certain of that all the time? So there's an inward look. But then there's also an outward look. As you have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know the only way that happens is if our eyes are open for those opportunities. If we're keeping our eyes to see people in need and then welcoming them. Again, not welcoming sin, but trying to help, trying to encourage, trying to provide rest and peace for their souls by pointing them to the only one who can do that for them. Earlier in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable that in a sense, could have been discouraging, the parable of the sower. If you listen to that parable carefully, you, know, you listen to it, if you're kind of logical like I am or you know, whatever, you think, man, three-quarters of the soil is bad. That's, that's not a good thing. And it could be almost discouraging. I'm not sure I really want to do this if three-quarters of the people are not really going to listen or they're going to listen for a while and then fall away or all those different things are symbolized there. Of course, that's not what the parable is about. It's not a mathematical formula. But it could, it could be taken that way if we're not careful. But Jesus turns that on its head about 20 verses later when he tells this little short two-verse parable that basically tells us the kingdom will be sown, the Word of God. It's not going to have the biggest beginning ever. But folks, it's never going to die. I came here this morning to tell you the church is going to be okay.
And may I say, in America, growing more secular by the day, in 2017, God's people need to hold to that truth. Amen? The church is going to be okay. Amen? My question is this. Are you a part of that church? Are you a part of the church that Jesus said, I will build, and he did? Are you a part of that church that Jesus said, hell's not going to defeat it, and it hasn't and it won't? Are you a part of that church that is from that seed, the Word of God, where Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins? That word where Jesus said, repent or perish. That word where Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. That word where Jesus said, believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. Are you part of that church? The only church. Brother or sister in Christ, have you been living in such a way where you're a welcoming branch within that church? Where people know they can come to you. And find safety and security, not because you're something greater, I'm something greater, even we're something great. But because the one we point them to is the greatest of all, Jesus the Christ. This morning, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not a faithful Christian, we invite you to come, we stand and sing to encourage you.